Welcome to the First Time Podcast. I'm your host, Tad. If this is your first time, listening to the First Time Podcast is really, really simple. Either me, the guest, or both of us are experiencing something for the first time, and we're going to talk about it. And like I said, it's really, really simple. And if you've ever listened to the show, which I'm, I'm thinking we'll probably get some new listeners today because of my guest, but um, if you've ever listened to my show, it's it's no surprise that we I talk a lot about movies and TV shows. That's sort of my thing. I uh, I run a film festival. I work at a theater. It's just uh, my forte. So uh, when I talked to my guest today about um, coming on the show and trying to figure out what we would talk about... Uh, we landed on a, a on something that he hadn't seen, and I was very excited for him to see. But uh, my guest today is an artist, an art educator, an old friend from college, and uh, his name is Jordan DeWild. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Thanks, Dad. I'm happy to be here. This is really cool. Yeah, so I, I probably uh, brag about this too much on the show, but I absolutely am uh, blessed to have like the coolest friends that uh, just have do cool things like. I have friends who make movies, friends who uh, write, and I'm like, you know, Jordan fits that bill once again. Uh, You know, we met in college, and since then, you've just gone on and and become a teacher. You've put out books. You've done just so much, and uh, I I just am excited to finally have you on here. You just put out a book, so I thought now is a great time to get you on here, and um, fortunately for me, I was uh, sent maybe a, a little preview copy to check out. And uh, I, I've had it for a couple weeks now, and um, I really enjoy it. It's uh, a book called 30-Minute Drawing for Beginners. And uh, why don't you sort of explain to my listeners or uh, listeners who tuned in because of you what your book is sort of about and um, what, they can, what they can learn from it. Sure, yeah. Uh, last spring, around the time kind of COVID was really taking off and we were all locked in, into our homes, um, this publisher reached out and asked me if I was interested in writing a book. And their first pitch to me was to write a book for kids um, for doing sketchbooks and how that process works. And that seemed like a natural fit for me, so I was really excited about it. Um, they asked me to write kind of a sample of, of what they were, were looking for. Um, I wrote the sample and then they, they passed it on to an editor who eventually uh, passed on it and did not feel that I was a good fit for it. Um, so that was kind of a bummer, and I, was, I felt a little um, rejected there. But then the publisher came back around and said, actually, we really liked your work. We just think you'd be a better fit for more of a uh, book tor- geared towards adult. So um, they were looking for something for adult beginners, but for uh, true, true adult beginners. So they said the market out there right now with beginning drawing books, they're either beginning books, but pretty juvenile, kind of more towards kids, or they say beginner for them, um, but the, the first you know steps are really advanced for someone who is just truly starting out. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, pitch. And so they kind of gave me an outline of what they thought that would be. And I, I pulled from my experience going through college and in some of the classes that we had uh, for our art degree, um, I pulled from some of those experiences and then kind of combined that with how I present things to my students. I've been a, an art teacher for about nine years now, um, started as an elementary teacher, taught high school last year, and now I'm teaching at a junior high. So kind of 
putting all of those experiences together to kind of present the, the basic fundamentals of drawing in a digestible way for true beginners. Yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. And I sort of told you, and uh, I, I also wrote a review on Amazon sort of explaining uh, because I wanted to like sort of have a hands-on um, review, like not just flip through it and say, you know, oh, this is a great book. So what I did was I opened it and went um, through it and I drew something because um, like I said, we met at Western Illinois University in the art department. I think my very first class uh, at, at the university you were in, which I think was Intaglio and uh, right. Garwood. And uh, that's essentially like a drawing class just on different uh, mediums. So uh, to be honest, since college, you know, I, I was an art minor and I have been a graphic designer since I was just out of college and I haven't really had a whole lot of experience as far as drawing anymore. Like mostly my, everything I do is on a computer. So it was a bit intimidating and scary. Cause like I said, I haven't put like pencil to paper um, in this fashion in quite a while. So it was sort of nice to like have a guide and not just go in um, completely without guidance. Like I sort of miss that guidance from school, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. it was nice. To, it's like, I, I didn't feel like it was um, too like simple for me, but also not too like advanced. Like it was really easy to follow. And like you said, 30 minute drawing, like it, it went by really quick and it sort of like reminded me that, yeah, I, I can do it. I definitely need to brush up on it, but um, it definitely mm -hmm. helped sort of bring up my confidence and get me back to the part to remind me that I, I can do this. It's, it's just nice to be reminded sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was a big point or a big, uh, something I was really trying to get across in the book is getting people just to get started. Cause once you get pencil to paper, once you get into a drawing, uh, you typically are going to, once you get in that zone, you kind of naturally want to do more or, or want to keep at it. So just getting that, that foot in the door is kind of what I was hoping for a book. So where can people find this book if they want to buy a copy or check it out? They can get it um, on Amazon, but it really it's available pretty much um, anywhere books are sold online. Um, initially, we were trying to push for pre-orders and orders on Amazon. But once it came out, um, I know some people have different uh, views about Amazon, maybe do or do not want to support them. So you can get it at other bookstores. Um, online would be probably the easiest way to find it. Um, I have a link to it on my website. So you know, there's, there's plenty of ways to find it. There's not a lot of Jordan DeWilds out there, so you should be able to find it pretty easy. Well, what's your website if they want to get it some, from somewhere else? Sure. Yeah. My uh, website is mrdewildart.com. Awesome. And I know this isn't like your first foray. It might be your first printed book, but this is definitely not your first foray into like um, art media. Like you're you always seem to be doing something because I remember in college you were actually doing like um, production and, and filming stuff. Yeah. So I started my uh, college experience my plan was to uh, go into broadcasting. So my degree is actually in broadcasting um, and I'm mostly focused on TV production. But kind of by end of my sophomore, beginning of my junior year, I realized I really should have gone into art education, but I didn't want to switch major since I was, I was kind of almost done with the broadcasting uh, classwork. So I ended up double majoring in art. Um, 
and not doing the education part because that was going to take much longer. And I kind of, kind of got lucky. I, I did a master's program at Illinois state where I was able to get my master's in art education and get my teaching certification at the same time without having to get a second bachelor's, which just seemed like a better move for me at the time. So kind of a roundabout way to get into teaching, but I think all those experiences, especially with broadcasting, like helped me be confident in, in producing other things and, and things in the classroom too. I'm getting students to want to work with, with video and, and things like that. Well, it's sort of like, you know, a little, uh, grim way to look at but it's like you know now everyone's learning like learning virtually mm. like i mean we're recording this virtually over the internet you know and it's like right. uh with your your broadcasting background it's like well you're already ready for this while a lot of uh, teachers were probably still fumbling on like how the hell to do this you're like oh you know uh here's it, it's, <laughs> here we go like you know now uh, now i get to show what i know but uh yeah a little bit there is a little bit i haven't thought of that but there have been a couple times throughout uh, before COVID even, but I've been able to be like, oh, I'm glad. Just like communication, I guess, in general has it has helped me. Yeah, I remember I was in, you did the thing where me and uh, the other Jordan, you like filmed right. us talking about, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but you put together that little video. And um, I, I didn't have a whole lot of friends in college because I still worked here in Burlington on the weekend. So I didn't, mm -hmm. outside of the art building, I wasn't very social. So it's like I had a very small handful of friends and um, you were one of them. And I'm so glad that we've, you know, kept in contact. And uh, I've just I love watching you grow and and see you do big things. And it's just like when I got the book in the mail uh, and you open it and it has your name on the cover and then you open it and it has it has you inside. And it's just like, man, this is so cool. Absolutely. I appreciate that a lot. And I know my next on my next thing that I want to do, I've been seeing, you know, you grow as well. I want to get to that film festival. And hopefully, you know, as things start opening up, we'll be able to, to get to that in person. I know you probably have other ways to present it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a whole other podcast. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I you know, that would be it would be great to have you here eventually. Um, so yeah, um, today, we are talking about a movie that um, you hadn't seen, and it's sort of uh, when you mentioned this movie, you hadn't seen it, and then put it together with education. It's a very, very loose tie-in. I, I, it's a stretch to be honest, but um, it, it, I sort of sent you these two lists. Um, I've, I've mentioned on the show before. I have a ongoing list of movies that I haven't seen that people are just flabbergasted by that uh, they can't believe I've never seen, and then I have another list of movies that I would love to talk about that I send to people and uh, you know, I send them both out and say, is there anything on this list? And we had bounced off about 10 different ideas as far as music and movies. Cause we have a lot of similar tastes, but there's also uh, stuff that we both love that um, is, is different. And uh, this movie was one that you said that you had sort of not necessarily avoided, but um, you just hadn't seen it, hadn't experienced it for one reason or another. And, and like I said, I have about a million of those. Um, and so when you said this one, I got really excited because it's it's one of my favorites. Um, and today we are talking about The Breakfast Club. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to ponder the error of your ways. Any questions? Yeah. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. 
can't believe this is really happening to me. Before this day is over, they'll break the rules. <coughs> Chicks cannot hold a smoke. That's what it is. Bear their souls. I'm a nymphomaniac. Are your parents aware of this? Take some chances. Being bad feels pretty good. Huh? And touch each other in a way they never dreamed possible. Why'd you do that? Because I knew you wouldn't. The Breakfast Club. They only met once. I don't want to be alone anymore. You don't have to be. But it changed their lives forever. I mean, I consider you guys my friends. I'm not wrong, am I? Universal Pictures presents Emilio Estevez, Paul Gleason, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy in a John Hughes film. Why are you being so nice to me? Because you're letting me. The Breakfast Club. Okay, so The Breakfast Club, released February 15th, 1985, written and directed by John Hughes, starring Emilio Estevez as Andrew Clark, Anthony Michael Hall as Brian Johnson, Judd Nelson as John Bender, Molly Ringwald as Claire Standish, Ali Sheedy as Allison Richards, Paul Gleason as Richard Vernon, and John Kapalos as Carl. Um, had a budget of $1 million. opening weekend, grossed $5 million, and uh, over its course, it grossed in the U.S. $45.8 million. And it has an 89% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So, Breakfast Club. Um, Jordan, why haven't you seen this movie? <laughs> no, that is, uh, it is definitely one that people are, are probably pretty shocked that I haven't seen. Um, I actually had a coworker who, I don't know, some, in some sort of conversation after school, a bunch of teachers were talking about it, and I was like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know the movie, but I've, I've never seen it. And they were just, you know, completely flabbergasted. And um, she would just keep asking me, like, have you seen it yet? You need to do this. This is your homework. Um, you know, Christmas break would come, and she would expect me to come back and have seen it. I never did. Um, at that school, when I... Uh, I finished there and I ended up switching jobs and, and moving on. She bought uh, the DVD for me. So I would really have no excuse <laughs> to watch it. So I finally got to watch it. She will be thrilled to to hear I've, I've seen it now. And I'm sure she'll check this this episode out. Um, yeah, I had, hadn't seen it. And um, I was telling a, a coworker today, I wish I had seen it maybe prior to becoming a teacher because I felt like the whole time I was kind of seeing it through this lens of a teacher. I know earlier you said it's a loose tie-in, but I, I just couldn't think of anything other than kind of my, my teacher hat. Well, that's interesting because uh, I was going to ask you a couple different things about perspective. Like I, I've talked about it on the show before, and uh, it's it's interesting because you're going into this as someone who's uh, been told over and over again that this is a classic uh, teen movie. It's one of the best ever from a master in uh, John Hughes. Uh, it's probably been built up for all these years and, and you've been, you know, it's been sitting on your shelf and, and sort of just like building anticipation. Uh, and so from that perspective, um, it sort of had an uphill battle uh, overall. Like you don't have to tell me details, but um, yay or nay, what did you think? I would, I would definitely say yay. I think any movie that can captivate your attention, especially when there is like basically one 
room that these uh, characters are in. It's almost like a grand play in a, in a way. So it's written so well that you don't need a bunch of scene changes, um, special effects, you know, things like that that some movies kind of lean on. Um, the story is is strong, and there's obviously a lot of universal themes that have resonated with people, you know, all these years since the movie came out. So I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah, it's. I'm glad to hear you liked it. I, you know, even if you if you didn't, and I'm sure there's parts that are uh, we'll get we'll hit on when I sort of go through the outline. Um, it's an interesting one because, like you said, it's more of a play. It's it's a group of a very small cast sitting in, mm-hmm. in essentially one room for ninety percent of the movie, um, and it's it's like all character development. Like there, it, this almost is very play like because it's they just don't really it's it's weird because it's like i talk about a lot of horror movies and genre films and you know it's like oh that scene where they they have the car chase or this or that and it's like in this it's like the scene where they said this and then the scene where they said that and the scene Mm -hmm. where they said this and so i was trying to just sort of set up my my normal notes like i do for a normal movie for this and it was very hard because i'm like well, how do I even how do I even talk about the structure? Because essentially, it's it's so simple at its core. It's mm-hmm. you know four four kids are in Saturday detention. Um, they they talk the entire time and get to know each other by the end of the movie. That's essentially what the entire movie is. There's not a whole lot as far as plot goes, but you learn so much about these characters in a short amount of time. And uh, yeah, you're talking about it from like a teacher's perspective. Do you see it like, uh, do you sort of sympathize with the teacher who's there? Or do you see it like, oh, I know this student who sort of fits that uh, stereotype and I have another student who's sort of the other stereotype? Yeah, I mean, there there's a little bit of both. I wouldn't say there's there was very, uh, it wasn't a very long time that I sympathized with the, with the vice principal there. Because um, he, you know, didn't turn out to be so great. But, you know, you do... Um, maybe sometimes you see other colleagues or you perceive other colleagues, um, you know, wanting that kind of control battle over, over students rather than really hearing them out. And um, I mean, I guess that's kind of the point of the movie, you know, at the end when they're kind of explaining to him that, you know, how dare he view them as just these stereotypes. Um, and there's so much more than that. And I think that's something as an educator, you think of especially when you're just going into education you you really have more an idealistic um view of, of students and and i think you kind of have to constantly remind yourself that um especially as you're getting older you know, i think there's there's a lot of times where you're like oh these kids these kids these days like stuff like that but you know even a movie back from the 80s um you know i think even the custodian brings this up in the movie you know, kids haven't changed. Um, sure, sure, the circumstances and the times have changed, but you know, a lot of these themes that the the characters are talking about, a lot of the experiences they um, share with one another, um, are still you know things that resonate with kids that are in my classroom today. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I watched this for the first time. Um, when I was in high school, like I don't have a, a huge nostalgic factor to this. I know a lot of um, 
people in the generation above us that were mm-hmm. more 80s kids. I was born in 85. What what year were you born in? 87. Okay, so um I think about like maybe my my older brother who uh is 4 or 5 years older and I think about that generation, you know, they have that nostalgic attachment because it's like, oh, I was in high school in the 80s. It was like that for me. I didn't see this till I was in high school. And I did relate to the characters a little bit, but it was never like, oh, I'm a Bender. I'm a, you know, Brian. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, I just thought it was really, I, I saw it more as a film and not so much as something that I connected to. It just thought it was really good writing and performances. Um, but it is interesting, like, you know, watching it now as an adult and sort of seeing like, man, in high school, like the, the smallest things seemed like the biggest deal. And it's like, I, I, you sort of want like, especially you, you I mean, you, you deal with kids this age all the time. It's like, you want to tell them like that thing that seems like it's life ending right now is just going to be like a funny memory when you're an adult. But at the time it right. seems like it's life changing, you know? And, oh, it, it the, uh, the, the, movie still sort of gets to me at times, like, uh, some of the emotional moments. Um, I, I'm not, I, I, did, I don't cry, but it's like, man, like you still get that pit in your stomach and, and definitely feel it with some of the performances. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it just, it kind of makes me think of some of it, you know, is universal and is still things that kids are dealing with now, but I did kind of get a kind of a glimmer of, of hope or, or just feeling like things are, are slightly better now because I, I feel like there is more support for the outsiders a little bit than maybe there was in, in the eighties or even when we were in school. So I feel like, you know, uh, the outcasts, they have, they have their group and they have support and it's almost like kind of cool now to also be the, uh, the popular kids. So I don't know. I feel like it's, it's more, um, I don't know. I just felt like those kind of kids have a little bit more support and are more represented maybe than they were back then. Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, we, I I like to hope that, you know, the younger generations, as we grow older, um, I mean, of course we won't get too political, but the last four years have sort of, uh, brought out an ugly side of things, but it's like, I like to think that, you know, today's times are at least a slightly more um, accepting of people. And, and you think about, you know, I mean, you, you look at, it's hard to even sort of find this balance, but it's like, I think about, you know, it was a big deal when we were, when we were in high school, it was like, you know, right when Columbine and that kind of stuff happened and uh, that sort of changed everything. It was like, you know, uh, and, and now we're, everybody's more, feels more, or I hope, you know, people are more, feel more open to talk about mental health and, um, you know, about how they're more open to their feelings. But of course, you know, can you imagine like, like, so I, I was listening to a podcast about this movie a while ago and they were like, if this happened today, they would just like pull out their phones and they would never talk to each other. Cause it's like, you're stuck, in a, you're stuck in a library. What are we going to do? I don't know. Just sit on social media and, and we won't even look at each other. But, um, it's also That's sort of true. funny to think about like they're stuck in this library for, uh, you know, nine hours, which is crazy on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And the only thing, and they're surrounded by books. I mean, absolutely surrounded by things to do. And the only time a book makes an appearance is when Bender's shredding one up. <laughs> right. right. I also thought it was funny that, um, 
Oh, the, the one character, the reason he was there at school or gun in his backpack. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you just got a Saturday detention for that. Like that would not be the reaction. No, today. no. And it's like watching that. It's like, oh, shit, that's heavy. And, and they react like it's really heavy, too. Yeah. But yeah. then, you know, it's like, yeah, he only got a Saturday detention instead of being like arrested. But, um, you know, yeah, or even like proper uh, like counseling. Or... Right. Did you ever have Saturday detention? Um, no, I thankfully did not. I do remember that my school, that was a thing that my school um, had, but um, not that I was like a perfect student, but I never did anything that warranted a Saturday detention. I I think our school might have had them, um, but I know it might have. I think it must have been Saturday because that would make sense. They had what they called they at our school they called them four hour detentions, and that was like a big deal. You had to do some serious shit to get a four hour detention. And now that I think about it, um, the only time they could sit you down for four extra hours would have to be on a Saturday because if they did it after school, you'd be going home at like ten o'clock or something. You know? um, but no, I I never had them either. I, I people would be surprised to know like how. Um, like well behaved i never missed a day of high school like literally uh perfect yeah. att- perfect attendance freshman through senior year i was a uh pretty much straight a student um not a valedictorian or anything but i was uh mm-hmm. i was a very well behaved um I, I, I but i see myself in in a couple of these characters um i definitely was not the athlete but i was probably in between the uh, brain and the basket case. I was definitely like, I dressed more like the basket case, but I probably okay. acted more like, like the brain, but I didn't uh, socialize with like anybody. So what, what were, would you fit in? Um, I would say probably more so the brain, I think too, just like, um, you know, wanting to do the right thing and, and please everybody. Both of my parents were teachers. So, uh, and I was in a small school district, so my mom was at the junior high and my dad was at the high school and that was the only school in town. So pretty much all of their friends, their coworkers, you know, had their eyes on me at all times. So um, I didn't get into too much trouble. Um, you know, when I did, I do think some uh, other teachers maybe took pity on me and knowing that I was under surveillance would would let things slide a little bit. but. For the most part, I I was probably more like the brain wanting to please my parents and do the right thing, get good grades. Um, I also didn't take too many things too seriously. I um, took a lot of electives and like didn't mind having you know more study halls. So it wasn't like the brain who's like trying to get a four point and and worried about college and and test scores and things like that. I was kind of like pretty laid back and yeah, I want A's and B's, but I'm not going to like try to get into calculus or take an extra load of coursework. Like that wasn't really my thing. Right. There was, um, I forget what they call them in high school, but there was these classes that you could take that would count towards like college credit at our local community college. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I wasn't on that level. There was like a whole, there, there was like a top level of, uh, you know, the, the, there was like a guy and a girl that were competing in my class for Valvictorian. So it was like one of those things. It's like, I'm not going to ever be at that level. So I, I was sort of relaxed about it too. And I, I did take, uh, you know, I took, uh, 
a lot of art classes and that kind of stuff, which mm-hmm. some people, you would have an interesting mix in those classes. And I'm sure you, you see it now too. But when I was in yeah. high school in Iowa, it was like, you'd have the, the, uh, sort of, um, weird, uh, sort of now hipster type kids that were in uh-huh. art classes that took it for real like me and then you had like the dudes that would wear like camo and were thought it was like an easy A and uh, mm-hmm. they get in there and quickly realize one it was not an easy A and two it's very evident when you're just there for a credit because uh, the it's like not arts and crafts class in high school anymore especially when you get to the higher levels and it's like if you don't have the skills it, it shows pretty quickly yeah, I, I like the part of the movie where Bender points out to the, the brainy kid, you know, oh, you're you're failing shop class, mm-hmm. but you're this genius. And um, the kind of dialogue they have that, that kind of points to, you know, everybody has their skill and has their intelligence in their own area. So this kid who's, you know, really bright in all these traditionally academic core classes, you know, can't hack it in shop class, but then... Bender, this kid who, you know, maybe probably is not doing well in most of his classes is able to, to do this. So I thought that was a cool exchange and is super um, relevant now because I feel like our generation was so pushed that everyone should go to college and college is like, you know, the, the baseline for success or for acceptability. Right. Now I think we're starting to see like trade schools value of trade schools and like putting kids where their strengths are instead of just trying to push kids who you know school is maybe not their thing pushing them onto college where they fail out or where they just don't succeed um i think now hopefully the tide is changing a little bit to put more respect and value into you know all kinds of different i think now we're we're using the verbiage of post-secondary Mm-hmm. options instead of like you're just going to go to college and if you're not going to college you work at burger king or something like that i think that's kind of the shift that we need need to have and i thought that conversation way back in this movie really spoke to that yeah it's interesting like a lot of stuff that he said in 85 like almost feels like you said more relevant today especially in that case because there, there's constantly that argument you see people shared on facebook uh you know we shouldn't push kids to go to college and, and uh, rack up student debt. Cause that's, that's yeah. a hot, that's a hot thing politically right now <laughs> too, is, you know, free college tuition and um, you know, for student loan forgiveness, that kind of stuff, because our generation was 100% sort of like taught um, you're not going to make money if you don't go to college, um, you know, yeah. and, and get a good and get, you can't get a good job without a four, at least a four year education, if not more. And yeah, uh, I'm glad that that tide is sort of shifting because, um, I mean, to be like, honestly, like so many people we went to school with, you know, at Western, I, I look out and it's like, you know, how many of them are, are in that, in their field. And that's okay. Like to not be in the field you went to school for absolutely nothing wrong with that. But, um, a lot of it's just because, you know, they felt pressured to go to a school they went to school they got your four-year degree and then they're like this isn't really what i liked but i felt like i had to do it you know yeah there's definitely when i interact with especially my high school students last year when i taught high school you know really kind of giving them that advice of you know community college is probably a good idea like let's not rack up our 
our debt and let's you know if you don't know what you want to go into like that's okay and like let's figure it out now um you know get those gen eds in if if you if you want to but like let's you know not push kids into something they're not ready for and expect them to know what they want to do for the rest of their lives at 18 like that's still a weird concept to me right yeah i think about when i was in middle school we had the option of shop art like foreign language and home ec and Mm -hmm. i think like sixth grade you had to take all four and then by like eighth grade yeah eighth grade was when you got to choose two of them and i or, or, or three of them you got to like skip one of them and i skipped shop and it was like at the time it was still like dude you're a guy like masculine you have to you have to be in shop and i was like one like i'm one of the only dudes in um home ec class sit surrounded by the hot girls so uh (laughs) that's a stupid idea um sorry guys but two like i wanted i learned how to cook i learned how to sew like those are those are skills i want to learn i took french like uh, mm-hmm. I loved art and, and I remember by the time I got to eighth grade, it, it, when it was a choice to take art, the art teacher like was night and day. Cause he knew that you made that choice over another, uh, option. So he, he sort of respected you for that. And he let you be a little more open and expressive. And I, I just loved that. That was like my first, like, okay, th- I could, I need to find some way to make this, like eventually make this a living. Like my first glimmer of like, okay, like I might want to do this in some way or form um, for money when I'm an adult. And, you know, it's like all it took was that one teacher to be like, okay, you chose to be here. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I respect you for that. That I just, that sticks sticks with me, you know, 25 years later or whatever it's been. uh, So, you know, it's just cool to hear it from another teacher's perspective. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're that art teacher that can make that change now. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. That is a lot of pressure. Uh, in my previous job, so I started out at elementary where every kid, you know, I have every kid. So there's definitely kids who don't want to be there. Um, but you try to give them the best uh, general art education that you can so that, you know, hopefully that something sticks with them and maybe you inspire some of them to want to continue. Um, and then when the high school position opened up in the same district, I ended up taking that. And so I had my first, so my first year, those fifth graders, I had as seniors in high school and same thing, like they were now, because of the way the high school program was uh, created, it was our studio one, two, three, and four. So the seniors had been in taking art electives for four years. I had them back as fifth graders and to see kind of how they had evolved into their own like, individuals and like they were like super um i don't know super unique and and super um had plans for their lives and were uh kind of entrepreneurs with their art and they were wanting to sell things and they had social media and they were producing not only you know kind of fine art like prints and paintings but were thinking of making pins and making sticker packs and all this stuff and it that was probably one of the most rewarding experiences for me in that district to see that kind of change over time. Yeah. It's like, uh, you're seeing the growth of them as people, like they're going from just sort of like sponges absorbing other, each other into like they're blossoming into their own as I know it's stereotypical, but it's like, 
I, I just remember like being that age and, and, you know, like it used to be like, I just want to do whatever my friends are doing. Cause you know, and, and then you sort of start branching off on your own and everybody sort of, uh, you know, you still have a lot of similarities, still dress sort of the same, but you also, you know, I like this and I don't necessarily like that thing about that and that's okay, you know. Yeah, I think we you get more of that, you know, breakfast club branching out into these different groups instead of a assimilation of, you know, two or three uh, learnings that, that I see more now that I'm at the junior high level. Like at that age, we're all trying to still blend together. We're not really wanting to to stand out. Um, I think high school is really that time where you start to kind of dip your toe into uh, the waters of, you know, who you want to be as you uh, grow into adulthood. Absolutely. So uh, let's sort of get into the actual movie. I'm not going to go step by step through this because that would just take forever. <laughs> but uh, right away, like the opening, we have um, a David Bowie quote, and I read that, or I, I had seen on some of the special features on the Blu-ray that um, Ali Sheedy uh, actually showed this uh, David Bowie quote to uh, John Hughes during filming. And she's like, you know, this sort of feels like it fits for the movie. And he, he was like, Oh, neat, you know, didn't say anything. And then they're at the premiere and that's the thing that opens the movie. And it like, it like blew her mind. Like, Holy shit. Um, this adult chose this quote. I showed him. Um, I I'll be honest. Like, I think the quote's pretty cool. David Bowie, you know, still, if anything, uh, more more cool and popular now than ever. Um, but okay. I, I sort of hate the, like, glass shattering thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Sort of cheesy, but it's cool that... I, I wish it would have just sort of opened with that and then go right into the, the next scene where um, it, it shows that... Uh, it actually opens with a monologue from uh, Michael Anthony Hall, which is how the movie sort of bookends. But uh, he's like, you know... We're almost on an anniversary here. It's uh, Saturday, March 24th, 1984 at Weather High School. Um, and it's showing these sort of cards throughout the school. Uh, and it's funny because it's a lot of foreshadowing. Like, after you've seen this once and you sort of go back and see some of the stuff, it's like we find out, like, we see um, almost a little, like, it has a little uh, scene for each character because we have, you know, mm -hmm. he's reading he's like, you know, you see us as a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. And we get like a screenshot from each sort of, we get like the basket case, we get Rorschach tests, and we get princess, we get um, a prom background, a criminal, mm -hmm. and we show Bender's locker, which um, a little dated there with the old like, open this locker and you die fag um, yeah. written on his locker. It's like, uh, there's a couple of those in this movie that a uh, little problematic, especially now, but it's like, man, the eighties were so full of that. Uh, when I go back and watch movies, it's like, holy shit, guys, you were just throwing that around. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, it, it's another thing that's still, you know, somewhat a reality for, for kids in school, but yeah, to be as uh, nonchalant about it, it's just, it's just problematic. Yeah. Um, we do, we see like a, a locker that's been scorched and we find out later what that's from. Um, uh, one thing I noticed this time, every time I watch it, I notice a few little small things. I noticed uh, they show like this, these pictures on the wall. It's like man of the year and it shows Carl Reed. And I'm like, oh, that's the janitor. When he was in high school, he was, uh. he was like man of the year. And now they tried to, Bender tries to like rip on him later in the movie. Um, but it's like, 
you know, he's like, I'm the eyes and the ears of this institution. I'm always listening to you guys. I know all your drama. I been, I go through your lockers. I know your business. So be careful. Uh, it's sort of funny. Cause it's like, I remember, and, and this isn't a diss on anybody, but I remember so many of like, especially teen movies later on, it was like, you know, the, the football player goes on to be like a total, like the, the high school, um, quarterback that peaked in high school goes on to be such a loser later in life it's sort of like i don't know if this is where that began but it sort of shows that just like he was man of the year and now he's janitor at the school and, and yeah interesting contrast but um you know it, it, i, I love that, that yeah he, i love that he puts bender in his place later in the movie I, uh, it's still funny but um then we sort of get our intro to the actual characters as they're being pulled up into the school uh it's like it's nice little like intro to everybody and how they're dealing with their parents. Like Claire's parents pull up in a BMW and her dad's like, you know, uh, there's no shame in, in skipping class to go shopping. That's not a crime. Uh, Brian's mom is like, don't ever come back here. Uh, I never mm-hmm. want to bring you back here again. And, um, it's funny cause that's actually his real life mom and sister playing his mom and sister in the movie. Um, that's cool. and then we have Andrew who's the wrestler. His dad's like, you know, I, you know, it's okay to cut loose and, and, you know, rough up some dudes, but, um, don't want to blow your ride. You know, you have a, a ride into college on your wrestling, so you don't want to miss a meet and blow your ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get Bender who's just walking by himself and almost gets hit by Allie's, uh, parents who gets out of this mm-hmm. sort of big junky old car and, quietly goes in and it's like we're already sort of getting a little bit of character development especially with those first uh three characters that are we, we see their interactions with their parents and you know mm-hmm. once again it sort of is it comes full circle later but um it's so funny when bender walks into the library and he's like already just has to touch everything knocking shit off the desk uh just just being an annoying asshole and every time i watch this i watch this um, we're recording this on a Thursday. I watched it Tuesday and then I decided to watch it again Wednesday cause I don't retain stuff very well at times. And I'm just, by the time I was watching it last night, I'm like, every time I watch this Bender gets more annoying. Like I want to punch him. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's cool. That does make me kind of want to take another, uh, another look at it. Cause yeah, I didn't pick up on some of those things that you're mentioning now. And it is, I do like how it, gives you some foreshadowing and gives you some introduction to each character. Um, yeah, it's a good start to the movie for sure. Yeah. It's like, uh, and, and this is pretty much where the, the whole movie takes place is in this library, which was actually, uh, it's an immaculate library, really cool with a big statue in the middle and it's two floors. And, uh, I learned that this is actually a set built, in like a gymnasium of a school like they didn't have uh, a and, and they shot the same uh they shot ferris bueller in the same school uh near i think it's probably near chicago because that's where um all of his movies are based in you know in illinois and that's where uh hughes was from okay. so uh we're all sort of sat in the library at this point and uh right away like i said bender super annoying he tells brian he's got to get out of there um I felt really bad. I still, I still sort of hate this scene, but it's realistic when Allie walks in and she sits down and, uh, the, the wrestler and the, and Claire, um, Andrew and Claire sort of look at each other and smirk like, Oh, the weird girl, like 
that was always me when I walked into a room every because I was I always wore like weird clothes and that kind of stuff. And I just remember like the popular kids would be like, oh, look what he's wearing today or something. It's uh, like and, and but it's realistic, you know, it, it's it's like it, it's right away sort of shows you what kind of pe- they're conceited and think that they're better than than the rest of the group. Um, but we get the vice principal walks in and he tells them they have to write a thousand word essay on who they think they are. Um, you know, no, you can't repeat the, the same word a thousand times. That would have been something I would have done. Uh, and, and right away we get Bender's sort of first, um, one liner that I love. Um, he's like, sir, do you have any questions? And he says, yeah. Does Barry Manilow know you raid his closet? Uh, it's such an <laughs> asshole, but funny move. Um, there was always like one kid in, I remember I had a kid in my class that would always talk back to teachers and it was like, okay, dumbass, like you're going to get in deep shit, but you know, we're all going to enjoy this. Right. right. Well, and I don't know, to me, like that's a really, uh, really smart, uh, insult. Oh and yeah. I, I would, I would, uh, have a hard time not, um, laughing along with that. I, think. But I guess it depends on how, how close it, it stings. Yeah. Yeah. So then he, he sort of replies, you know, they're, they're going back and forth and don't mess with the bull. You'll get the horns. Uh, that's, that's sort of another classic line. I mean, this movie is full of so many quotes that I like, I, I was like trying to write down some of these in my, or, or type some of these down in my phone. And I'm like, there's just too many quotes. Um, I, I, I wasn't sure. I, like, I obviously have heard the don't, don't mess with the bull. You'll get the horns. I didn't know that this movie is where it like originated from. And, I mean, I've heard here all the time, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, the old uh, quote that everyone still uses, go close the door, we'll get the prom queen impregnated. Like, (laughs) some of these things he says is like, uh, that would never fly today, but um, holy shit, dude. Like, right away, he's the most abrasive human. Um, And from what I've read and heard, he was, the actor himself, was just a huge pain in the ass on set him and john hughes argued and fought all the time um and hughes was known to reuse his um actors several times i mean he used everybody else in this movie for several of his movies and um this is one one that did not make his way back uh i'm trying to remember let's see it is judd nelson yes uh judd nelson did not make his way back to a John Hughes movie because apparently he was actually just that big of an asshole on set. <laughs> but he uh he takes a screw out of the door and uh that's sort of where it's sort of a nice transition cuz that's like, you know, gives him some privacy. We have some funny scenes where he's trying to get Andrew to help him put this like magazine rack in and they're all sort of laughing and mm-hmm. he's a little too serious like he takes his vice principal job very seriously. Never never uh has a smirk or a smile for anybody but that's sort of the uh i don't know the contrast in these guys and, and it makes it more funny that's true it takes it really seriously except um not supervising these children for the nine hours right yeah well, i was just thinking like if he does he, he we get to a scene um where uh he basically he comes in and he's like you know uh, I'm going to shake that screw out of you. And he's like, um, you know, hand it over or you be quiet. Or are you going to get another detention? And he said, eat my shorts, which was another thing that happened before Bart Simpson. Like he said that before and made that yeah. popular, but eventually um, 
you know, he, he keeps talking back and gets eight Saturday detentions. And I'm thinking like, is this, is Dick going to be there every Saturday for the next two months? Like how can, as a teacher, how can they make him do this? Like that's just as bad for him as it is for the students. Right. Unless, I don't know, maybe he is looking at that overtime check or <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why anyone would want that other than there, there is that personality that just can't. Um, and I think, he fits this bill for sure. Can't, can't lose, can't um, be humiliated in front of people. Um, really just has to have that power struggle. And I think his pride, um, you know, maybe he would give up eight Saturdays just to, to prove Bender that he's he's in control here. Yeah, probably. I mean, he definitely has that um, that personality where, and he says it like, you know, later when he has him, um, to himself, he's like, you know, that's the last time you embarrassed me in front of those those other kids. Uh, it's like th- these two are the ones constantly butting heads. But he also sort of seems to have like if anybody smiles, he, I mean, he's downright like almost mean to everybody, um, especially when like I think like when Brian raises his hand and he's like, um, you know, sir, uh, you know, he, he starts to say something. He's like, sit down. Like he, he's just like doesn't want to hear it from anybody like Claire. Claire's like, you know, uh I, I don't think I'm in the I'm I'm supposed to be here and he's like uh, you're all supposed to be here but yeah I think and I noticed noticed that the custodian pointed out to um, the principal that you know you got into this thinking it was going to be fun thinking you know you're going to get your summers off and then you started the job and you realized it's hard work and I think there are you know there are some unfortunately teachers that go into it. Um, for the wrong reasons, I think you know, in uh, in my field in art education, I think there are teachers who maybe liked art or maybe had another um, career path where they wanted to be an, a professional artist, and then that didn't work out, and so they fall back on teaching, but really had no passion or desire for it. And so I think anytime someone goes into any field in education where you really want someone who like wants to work with kids and wants to see them as their best um, selves uh, usually is a a recipe for disaster. So I think the custodian was really um, insightful there and pointing that out to to the principal. Well, that's, that's what's interesting too, is like, it seems like the, the, the janitor is like the most level-headed, almost the smartest character in this, uh, Mm-hmm. whole story and, and once again he sort of mentions that you know he's the eyes and the ears but um it's just interesting like he from the student's perspective and uh from you know him talking to the vice principal we learn a lot and he only has like two scenes and we learn a lot about him but uh we get a bunch of other infamous quotes from this one um do you slip her the hot beef injection i remember oh that one that one stands <laughs> out um eventually him and andrew start um arguing and he does the you hear this and he has his middle finger down want me to turn it up and flips the middle finger up um he calls i think he calls uh brian a neo maxi zoom dweeby uh (laughs) it's like what in the world i mean very 80s like very product of that time um and then him when him and bender uh bender and andrew start fighting uh, and, and Andrew gets him pinned to the ground cause he's a wrestler. He's like, you know, uh, I I'd kill you and your parents would, uh, fucking sue me. It's like, 
that's that's where that's the only reason that's the only thing from him uh stopping him from from killing him is that his parents would sue not you know the murder <laughs> charges or uh <laughs> so funny but uh it, we also uh, one of the scenes in right in this uh, time period is another one of my favorites is when Allie is drawing like a landscape and she itches yeah. she scratches her head over it and gets like snow out of her dandruff. Um, yep. <laughs> I I love Allie's character like the whole movie um, she's to me like and they set it up like that she's a mystery at the beginning um, but she's just so eccentric like this reminds me of me and my friends like I, I didn't have anyone necessarily that would scratch their dandruff but we definitely. <laughs> Did, we were the art kids that did some weird stuff and wore weird clothes and came from weird uh, households and, uh, you know, that would sort of sit back and be quiet and, and just sort of watch things unfold. And every time she does one of these things, like everybody turns and stares at her like, what in the hell is she doing? <laughs> yeah, I love when she just like randomly would like yelp or like make some weird noise. And just, yeah, okay. I, I don't think she actually says anything until like 40 minutes into the movie. Uh, I think it's yeah, it's when... Um, when the principal's like, you know, do you, do you guys, um, need to use the bathroom? And then they go through the whole milk thing. Um, you know, we're yeah. going to be dehydrated. So he sends them to the teacher's lounge to get sodas and they're walking and it's Andrew and Allie. And he's like, what's your poison? You're like, what do you drink? And she's at this point, she still hasn't said a word. And, uh, right. she, the first thing she says is vodka, you know, <laughs> mystery vodka. And it's like, they have this talk back and forth and it's clear right there he starts talking about like you know oh i'm controlled like you you probably think my life's easy and i you know and i'm controlled by my parents it's like he starts opening up to her and she has she said like two things you know yeah uh but um that's sort of where we start getting so a little bit to, to know her a little bit more because we've had almost no development on hers um and that leads where like claire bender and brian are back and they're talking about um being virgins which, mm-hmm. you know, in high school was always a big theme. Uh, and e- even in like teen movies, I remember like American Pie was that entire movies about that. So uh, always been a big theme in these types of movies. But we, we get to the lunch scene and I thought this was interesting. Um, you know, Claire, everybody pulls out their lunches, which once again, sort of um, not it, it's like an extension of their personality. Like Claire pulls mm-hmm. out the sushi and bender's like you know what is that and she's like sushi and and this was even more so um in the 80s it still is sort of a status thing like you know uh it's an it's an expensive food but it's so funny to think like in 84 or 85 when this was made like that was like a like oh shit sushi is like you know it's like having a black credit like the black card the credit card it's like oh shit you know she has sushi and uh andrew has like uh, an entire like four sandwiches uh, a gallon of milk a bag of chips all this stuff because he's a wrestler and has to you mm. know be high protein and I, I love this scene just because it's like such an extension of their their things Allie gets this sandwich and she throws the like bologna up on the statue and pours like a pixie stick and captain crunch onto her sandwich uh brian has a uh peanut butter and jelly with the crust cut off um, and of course, uh, Bender does not have lunch, so he just wants to go eat Brian's lunch. Yeah, even just those small details are really, um, really great to the character study and just really, you know, tell us more and, and uh, understand more about the character. I think it's, it speaks to the writing of the movie for sure. Yeah, and then this is where we sort of get a um, really sort of big emotional scene so what we'll do is take a quick break and uh we're here from the podcast network and then we'll get back to this uh what i said was 
a, a big pivotal scene. So we'll be right back. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. And we're back. So like I sort of teased as we were uh, getting out of here, this scene, uh, this lunch scene sort of lends to a discussion about family because Bender sort of making fun of Brian, like, I bet your household's like, you know, leave it to Beaver type thing. And, uh, you know, they're like, well, what's your family like? What about your family? Mine? Yeah, it's real easy. Stupid, worthless, no good, goddamn freeloading son of a bitch, retarded, big mouth, know it all, asshole, jerk. You forgot ugly, lazy, and disrespectful. Shut up, bitch! Who fixed me turkey pot pie? What about you, Dad? Fuck you. No, Dad. What about you? Fuck you! No, Dad! What about you? Fuck you! Is that for real? You want to come over sometime? That's bullshit. It's all part of your image. I don't believe a word of it. You don't believe me? No. No? Did I stutter? Believe this? Huh? It's about the size of a cigar. Do I stutter? See, this is what you get in my house when you spill paint in the garage. See, I don't think that I need to sit with you fucking dildos anymore. He has he has a pretty ugly family life. Um mm-hmm. And this is sort of where things, you know, we're getting to know these these guys a little bit more as the movie goes. Um, and this is where they sneak out of the library. And uh, one of my favorite scenes, because they're trying to make their way back after they they snag the weed out of Bender's uh, locker, which has a like a guillotine in it. Um, <laughs> pretty in a noose, pretty wild stuff. But um, they're sneaking back and he bender sort of it's like almost like his first indication of actually caring about them. Cause uh, he's like, I'll take one for the team. You guys get back and I will distract uh, Dick. And so he goes to the gym and, and this was another thing I noticed for the first time um, when they go to the gym and he's playing basketball, he's wearing one basketball shoe. I did notice that. And then I thought, well, maybe that was what he was wearing the whole time. But then later on I saw him wearing both. Yeah, uh, I don't know if that was his idea because they they said that they were allowed to improv quite a bit and uh, throw in their own ideas. That seems like something um, that he would have done. So I thought it was pretty funny just noticing that. But uh, another one of my favorite lines, this this leads to another one of my favorite lines when he comes back, uh, the the principal comes back and he's like, 
what if your house was on fire? What if your and he's like, wait, what if your dope was on fire? And he says, uh, <laughs> impossible, sir. It's in Johnson's underwear. Uh, so damn funny. Um, uh-huh. Cause it actually is. And he's like, holy, he's like freaking out, you know, at this point. Yeah. But the, the principal didn't buy it or even like consider it. I think he just thought, Oh, it's another benderism, I guess. Right. Yeah. He's, he's just so full of it that he just, luckily for, for Brian that uh, right. he, he doesn't believe him. But um, this is when the principal takes Bender privately. And this is sort of a, a moment that I'm like, this is a little too much. He takes him into the room and he has like a real talk with him. And he's like, if we weren't in the school or when you graduate and we, I see you on the street, I'm, I'm basically beating the shit out of you. Uh, he even like makes, makes him flinch by threatening to hit him. And it's clear that, you know, Bender is a big talker, but he's pretty scared in this scene. Like, you know, he's a kid still. He's right. Even though he looks like he's about, 20 years older than everybody right so some of them <laughs> in particular i don't know i think emilio also looks a little bit old for high school um the girls maybe could have passed but yeah emilio and uh Nelson looked a little old for high school but that's kind of the way it goes for teen teen movies it seems like yeah and i think um i don't have have the ages in front of me but i'm pretty sure everybody was uh, in their twenties, except for Molly Ringwald, and she was actually sixteen. So she, like, everybody was significantly older than her in this movie, and they sort of had to shoot around her because she was still like young enough to um, be protected by like the child labor laws. Right. Wow. Um, but eventually, Bender sneaks out of uh, the room, gets up on the ceiling, <laughs> and falls into the library. Uh, and and this is another one of my favorite scenes. He comes running and he's like, "God damn it! What was all that ruckus?" And and then you see them all sort of working together. They're like, um, "What ruckus, sir? What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Oh." What is this? Uh, and they're just being like over the top, uh, condescending to him. Um, and, and, and then we get one of my least favorite scenes. And then I found out this is um, one scene in this entire movie that uh, John Hughes regrets is when um, they're getting high and Andrew's like doing like flips and somersaults and, and sort of going nuts all around the upper floor of the library. Mm-hmm. And he runs into this separate i don't know if it's like a, a av room or something but he mm-hmm. he yells and shatters the glass yeah it's like what this movie is so grounded in reality and then when it hits that it's like is this supposed to be like a dream in his head he's so high like it didn't make any sense to me he would be in so much trouble um that would be very right. very loud um they would ne- he would it just to me i'm like i wish they wouldn't include included that because it just takes me out of it like cut that one part of it. I mean, you can have him running around acting like an idiot, yeah. but, but the, the yelling and glass breaking, I, I, I don't like it. And what it's sort of like the beginning. I didn't like the glass breaking something against glass breaking. I don't like. Yeah. It, and I, I didn't think of it to that extent, but I did. I do remember that striking me as like an odd choice. When I saw it. Yeah. And, uh, we finally get some, uh, action from Allie. Like she, she comes in and she's like, they're, they're having a conversation. He comes in and she knows everything about uh, Michael Anthony Hall's character. And, and he's like, mm. you know, they're like, how do you know that? And she, she's like, I stole your wallet. And then we find out, you know, <laughs> they're talking about their home life and about their parents. 
uh, Allie makes up this whole story about being a nymphomaniac and, and they're like, you know, she's like, I, I told my shrink and they're like, what did he say? And it's like, well, he's the one that I'm sleeping with and he's married. Uh, and then of course she admits that she's a compulsive liar. And we see little things throughout the movie that she's like, not only a compulsive liar, but she likes to steal. She's like a klepto. Mm -hmm. Uh, she, she, at the end, I, I noticed this time, another one when she steals, um, Andrew's like patch from on his on his Letterman jacket. He she like rips it off and puts it in her purse. Uh, she, she steals a wallet. She's just stealing little things throughout the movie. It makes me laugh. <laughs> but uh, this is like the the really heavy scene after they've all uh, smoked and and you know I feel like it mellows everyone out and they're all just sort of hanging out. But I also question at this point. I'm like the principal is not even like they they're literally in the library smoking weed and he hasn't come right. in like like he right. has nothing else to do he doesn't have the internet he doesn't have anything mm -hmm. to do but watch these kids where the hell is he yeah i kind of wonder that too for for as long as as they're going to be in there i don't know they i i don't know i guess if they had given him more of a, a storyline too it would have pulled away from the, the students but th this is probably my favorite uh, scene in the entire movie, and it to me is just uh, the one I, t I talked about earlier in the movie in the episode is so emotional. Like uh, she admits she's a impulsive liar. Then um, we get Andrew sort of talking about you know this like you know got you guys know why I'm in here, and they're going around um, talking about what got them in Saturday detention. He says you know I, I you guys know Larry Lester. Well, I was the one who taped his buns together, and they all have a good mm -hmm. laugh. But then he. Uh, he sort of says, you know, he talks about his his home life and how his dad um, pressures him to constantly win. He has to win. You better win these matches. And uh, he's getting really emotional. It's clear that he had this um, sort of on his chest for a long time and he's wanted to tell someone about it. And uh, the moment where he talks about, you know, I just he, he thinks about um, Larry Lester going home and having to explain to his parents that, you know, uh, he got his butt cheeks taped together and they, you know, ripped off the hair and some skin and how humiliated he would have been. And, uh, nice. and it's just, it's so heavy, but it's like, I definitely, every time I watch it, I still feel it, you know, when they start, uh, sort of pouring their souls out to each other. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty real, um, experience that that teens have because i think you know most of the time in high school and and in junior high too or like you're putting on this front of everything being together and and trying to uh at least project perfection as as much as you can and you don't really share a lot with your parents and you know eventually you know you have maybe friends or you have an experience where you, you do kind of word vomit everything out that you're feeling and and have that vulnerable moment and so to kind of capture that on film it could have been a really um what they call it, uh, saturday after school special kind of vibe to it where right. it's like real cheesy but it's written in, in such a way that i think is pretty honest and is pretty um i don't know it just comes across really uh, for lack of a better word real than some of those like uh, with an agenda or a message of like, let's all you know we're all one we're all I mean it still has that message without being kind of forced and being pokey right and it's it's always been interesting to me because um, I sort of got into like I, I, John Hughes is known for you know his teen comedies and 
uh, he's always sort of been hailed as like the king of these things, the the best, um, like the, the most realistic writer. Like he connects with these um, adolescents so well. And it's always been interesting to me because it's like, you know, he, he wasn't he, he wasn't very young when he was writing and directing these. I mean, he, he wasn't, you know, in his in his like 60s or anything, but he definitely mm-hmm. was. It's like it's it's weird for an adult to find like actually get how kids talk to each other. You know what I mean? Like something about um, how he did this made it so like it felt real. And and he was like just perfect at it. Uh, I'm assuming you've seen some of his other movies. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few of them. I have not seen 16 candles. So that's another Molly Ringwald uh, teacher. Right. I've seen Ferris Bueller's day off. I'm sure I've seen other ones, but um, those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah, and it's just like you said, it's it's for lack of better words, very real. But um, then after Andrew sort of confesses, you know, his problems at home, um, Brian talks about the pressure of getting straight A's and his parents, and and we we talked about it a little bit earlier, but he talks about um, failing shop because he's trying to put this um, elephant lamp together, and you're supposed to be able to pull on the the trunk and it turns on. And he pulled the trunk and it didn't turn on. Um, and it's, you know, of course, Bender sort of rips on him for it. Like, you know, and, and we, we've already gone over that a little bit, but it's like mm-hmm. a very open moment where, you know, I, and I, re- I sort of remember that. Like, I, I remember we had to cut our initials out of wood in shop class and I was terrified of the saw. And the guys are like, yeah. you know, that's so stupid. But I remember just I think the pressure of doing it in front of other like people like was getting to me too. Cause I'm like, I, I hate, I didn't want to fail in front of my classmates yeah. and stuff. And the, the, the safety that they sort of put me on and like, you know, the safety measures made me almost more nervous. It's like, if you screw up in any, in, in any way, <laughs> you're going to lose a finger. And it's like, okay, like, right. you know, they, they made it very serious, but uh, it's just, I definitely related to that and uh, around his age where it's like, you know, I'm so smart. Like I can do any kind of math. Why the hell can't I make this lamp turn on? Uh, yeah. And it's just, it's so stupid because he's talking about elephant lamp and he, you know, everybody's sort of getting real emotional and crying. Um, and it's like, what can you do? What can you do? Uh, and everybody's sort of talking about, um, you know, different things they can do. Uh, Brian eventually admits, you know, why he was in there. He's like, you know, did you guys know why I'm in here? And, and they're like, well, you know, well, no. And he's like, uh, they found a gun in my locker and it's really heavy at first. Cause it's like, Oh mm-hmm. shit, what was he going to do? Like, of course now at our, at, at this time in, in, uh, history now, um, we automatically think like school shooting back then that wasn't a thing. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of, he sort of hints that he was going to kill himself. And then, um, it's like then the gun went off in his lock. We find out the gun went off in his locker. It was a flare gun, and uh, it destroyed the elephant lamp. And then they all have a good laugh, and it's sort of like, you know, ridiculous. And that's that's where we see that torched locker in the opening scenes. Um, we actually see Brian's locker that has had the flare gun go off in it. I don't understand what. You think I don't understand pressure, Claire? Well, fuck you. Fuck you. I'm here today. Do you? 
I'm here because Mr. Ryan found a gun in the locker. Why'd you have a gun in your locker? I tried. Let me pull a fucking trunk on. It's the light's supposed to go on. It didn't go on. I mean, I don't... what's the gun for, Brian? Forget it. You brought it up, man. I can't have an F. I can't have it. I don't know my parents can have it. Even if I ace the rest of the semester, I'm still only a B. Everything's ruined for me. Brian. Brian. <laughs> my options, you know? No, killing yourself is not an option. Well, I didn't do it, did I? No, I don't think so. It was a handgun? No, it was a flare gun. It went off in my locker. <laughs> it's not funny. We're, they're going around and sort of like, what can you do? Everybody sort of has a unique talent. And this is where we get the, the Claire lipstick scene where she puts the lipstick in her cleavage and can apply it. And uh, once again, Bender is a complete asshole. And uh, he's like, I promise I won't laugh. And then like, you know, is, is a complete dick about it, claps and acts like he's unimpressed. Uh, uh, and then one of, one of the most famous and probably my favorite, one of my favorite lines in this is when Ali says, uh, when you grow up, your heart dies. When you grow up, your heart dies. Who cares? I care. Uh, they're getting heavy, but it's like, you know, I, I've always felt that was such, like, that's that line almost gives me goosebumps when she says it every time. Yeah, I like, yeah, I like that line for sure. I also liked um, Brian and Claire's exchange where he really calls her out on being conceited. Yes. Says something like to the effect of, well, you know, they look up to us and, and has this perception of herself as so high um, and mighty. And, and he's, you know, just in disbelief that someone could be that, that full of themselves. Yeah. Uh, basically, he's like, what happens to us? Um, what's going to happen to us on Monday? It's like, what do you mean? Well, when we go mm -hmm. back to school, are we friends? I mean, we're friends now. And she's the only one that's basically like, no. And, you know, it's like, what, what's wrong with you? And she's like, well, I'm just being honest. Uh, you know, uh, you're not gonna, she's like, Andrew, you're, you're not actually, when Brian comes up, if Brian came up to you in the hallway on Monday, you would say hi to him. And as soon as he walked away, you would make fun of him. You and your friends would have a good laugh at him making fun of him. And you know, it's true. And, uh, you know, he calls her out and it's like, how can you be so shallow? How can you be so hateful? Um, it's like, well, you know, my friends, it's it, she basically pushed on her friends. And it's like, you know, no, that's not an excuse. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like, I hope that and, and I, I have a little bit of hope, you know, especially hearing from you, like, you know, that your students and stuff. It's like, 
I just, I remember that being, I was never really bullied, but I definitely felt that in high school. I sort of had, you know, the chip on my shoulder that, um, I, I felt like everybody hated me when in reality, they probably just did not consider me, you know, and that's, that was mm-hmm. fine. Like I was just a quiet kid, but it's like looking at this movie and stuff, it's like, you know, it, it's interesting as adults because yeah. you run into people in high school that were, that you, you assume in your mind were like too good for you, wouldn't speak to you, whatever. And they're really nice to you. And, and my first thought is like, well, now you want to talk to me, but then it's like, you know, I, I never talked to them either. You know, it's like, I never tried. I, I just assumed that they thought they were too good. And, uh, it's just, it's a really interesting scene just because she's very honest and they sort of call her out for her crap. And, uh, the, the, then we get this sort of another ridiculous scene. Um, well, I, I'm jumping the gun a little bit. They get to Allison uh, to ask her why she was in uh, detention, and she admits that she wasn't even supposed to be there. She just had nothing else to do, so she came to Saturday detention, which is so on uh, target for her character. Like it's so perfect. Yeah, I was I was waiting for that to be a lie and there to be a reason, but then I was like, no, that that fits. That's it. That's her brand. <laughs> yeah, but then I questioned like her parents dropped her off. Did she tell them like I have a project or something? Like, yeah, I don't know. But we we get this big sort of dancing scene towards the end where they mm-hmm. turn on some like new wave music and they're they're dancing. And from it always st- sort of stood out as weird to me, a very eighties movie thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a little unrealistic because it's like, yeah, they're, they're all, they've all made friends with each other, but, um, Bender has a limit and I do not see him <laughs> dancing to this kind of music with these people. Well, uh, and it's like very well choreographed too. So it's not like just a freestyle, like they're, you know, doing the exact same, you know, motions along the bookcase. Right. And for, I guess we suspend our perception of reality uh, a little bit too. Right. And from what I read, it was originally in the script, just supposed to be Claire dancing. Like she turned it on a dances and everybody sort of just watches and like enjoys it. And, um, she, her being 16 and pretty inexperienced, she had only done the one, uh, John Hughes movie. I think it was, I don't remember 16 candles or pretty in pink was first. I think 16 okay. candles, but, um, she was pretty self-conscious and so uh the rest of the cast they they did actually become really good friends on on uh set so they sort of stood up for each other when stuff like this happened and she told them you know like i don't want to dance by myself so they're like let's just do it as a group and that will everyone will be a little more comfortable and it's it's a little odd of a scene just like i said uh i just don't see like you said, it's, it's a little too choreographed. It's it's very yeah. 80s, but uh, I just don't see Bender. He's not going to dance to this. Yeah, I didn't think of it when I watched it, but now that you say it, I, I can see that that doesn't really fit Bender so well. I did appreciate that the music was not like the the top song of the day. Like it pretty, um, like I don't know what that song was. So like I, I was kind of glad that it wasn't like, I don't know, some proper right um, it still it feels just like you know kind of part of the movie and not like this forced commercial thing right it doesn't take you out and uh make it make it feel like product placement or something right. uh, and then we have another we're, we're getting towards the end it's sort of one of the scenes it, it seems the, the end sort of seems to come pretty sudden but um one scene that we get here before they they're done is one that i just don't and of course it's just um probably a product of the time but i it's so typical now um, 
where Claire takes Allie into another room and she makes her up and it gives her a makeover. She comes out and suddenly uh, Andrew notices her both guys or all the guys notice her. But Andrew's like, oh, you know, with your hair back, I can see your face. and You're so pretty. And I'm just I the, the concept of like someone putting on some makeup and pinning back their uh-huh. hair. And now they're suddenly a different person. It drives me nuts. And it's a stereotype in teen movies. Yeah. Now I imagine at the time it wasn't as big of a stereotype, but it's like, it's it just to me after this whole movie of like, they all poured their guts out to each other and accept each other for who they are. And then it's like, well, let's make her pretty now. And maybe Andrew, the wrestler will like her. It's like, yeah. oh. it, it, to me that falls flat on his face because it, and, and the other thing, um, and sorry, I'm just sort of like, uh, like ranting now. But the other thing that sort of <laughs> irritates me, like this is where um, Andrew sort of hooks up with Allie and then Claire, for some reason, decides she's going to kiss Bender and they're they're a thing now. Um, mm. Like that whole thing. And, and I, I actually learned that um, she's she wrote an essay about this. But Claire, when she hooks up with Bender, it's like. The dude has treated her like crap the entire movie. Abusive, yeah. like emotionally abusive, um, almost physically abusive. Has done nothing but um, ragged on her, been mean, and then it's like she ends up falling for him. And it's like it, to me, it's still it, it's a great movie. It doesn't ruin the movie, but it's like the wrong message at the very end here. Yeah, and I guess I don't know. They're they're young, and and I that is kind of a, a fact of life that people fall for for people who are not um great for them uh and especially as teenagers but yeah i don't i don't like that message either i was kind of hoping for um when uh ali gets her makeover and she you know comes up to the to the wrestler and he uh, he says something like you know oh wow like your hair is different and she's like oh well you know what? What do you think, or, or or what do you mean by that? And I was waiting for him to be like, "Oh, I liked it better the other way." Yeah, or, like uh, I liked you the uh, way you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, didn't get that. Didn't get it there. No, and I mean, I get it, but it's just, and it's like I said, it's a product of the times, and it probably mm-hmm. at at that point wasn't overused like it is in every. I mean, we had entire movies like she's all that and all that kind of stuff okay. where, you know. uh, where the glasses and now you're you're smoking hot yeah exactly i mean it got even got parodied in like not another Uh teen movie i mean they they it's just become a a cliche but um yeah it just to me is like a little indifferent and uh molly ringwald like i said i think last year the year before she wrote a really long essay on the anniversary of this movie and talked a little bit about how she was reluctant to show this to her kids because um of that message of like um she fell for the sort of abusive guy that treated her wrong the whole movie. And she still ends up, you know, not only forgiving him, but um, sort of falling into that trap. Uh, but she, I think she did end up saying sort of like, she wants to show it to them, but sort of give them like a lesson of like, you know, the way he treated her was not right. Um, and, and it was more of a product of the time, but uh, eventually, and, and I feel sort of bad too, because it's like the do the two, um, Bad boy and the wrestler get a girl. <laughs> Meanwhile, Brian has to write the essay for everyone. <laughs> right. And so that's, he's being traded as a brain again. Yeah, that's true. But eloquently spoken. Right. Uh, in the essay. So they gave it to the right guy, I guess. But. Yeah. And they, they even sort of at least they address it because they're like, so, Brian, you want to write this essay? And he's like, why me? And Claire's like, well, you're the smartest. 
And uh, I think he it sort of embraces that. Like, he knows that going in, and it sort of gives him a little boost of, like, you know, I am, you know, and I, I should be proud of, like, my strengths. You know, this mm-hmm. is what I'm good at, and they asked me to do it. So it, it's not more – it's not really, like – a group project that one person works on, but it's like, you know, we, we nominate you because you'd say it most uh, eloquently and best. And they, they leave the school and it's sort of like a whole, a complete wraparound. We hear the, the essay again that Brian wrote that we heard at the very beginning. And then um, the, instead of the, the parents dropping off the kids, they're picking them up and now like they're completely changed. And which I, I thought was sort of an interesting and weird scene too. Like, that the kids are kissing in front of their parents. Like I would yeah. not kiss uh, a girl in front of my mom in high school or like, I still am weird about it. So uh, right. it's like uh, they're making out in front of their mom, like with a, with a guy who's wearing six coats and like a hobo boots, like Claire's dad would have flipped. Or I guess yeah. it was, I can't remember if it was mom or dad that time. I know his dad dropped her off, but I'm thinking, no, it was, it was Brian whose dad picked him up because John Hughes yeah. plays his dad in the movie. But, um, yeah, and then she gives gives Claire the uh, earring and and or Br- Claire gives Br- Bender the earring and he puts it in, um, you know, and and we get Andy making out with Allie and sends her on the way, gets in the truck, and then uh, we get the infamous scene as S- Simple Minds plays and Bender's walking off the football field, raises the fist, and don't you forget about me, and that's where the credits roll. Yeah, I I was kind of suspecting a um, you know a Monday morning. Uh, back to school do they become friends or not kind of shot but I think that is maybe how the movie would be made today or after right these days of of teen movies have have fallen after this has been uh, released yeah we'd probably get like a 10-part Netflix series and uh and then this would be in season two we would find out what happened but uh yeah, that's that's the Breakfast Club. We get the freeze frame, the perfect '80s ending with a big song um, from Simple Minds, like I said, and uh, interesting because you know everybody knows that song. You haven't seen this, but I guarantee you've heard that song, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah definitely. I will go over some quick trivia on this. There is, I mean, uh, what I do on these episodes about movies is I go on IMDb and uh, I look at the trivia section and some of it is probably made up because you can't trust anything on the internet. Um, But this there I've never and all of these I'm on episode. This is this will be 31. I've never seen a movie with more. This was like I was scrolling forever and I'm digging through and just trying to find stuff I thought was interesting and not just just read all of it but um there is a lot of trivia on this so i will try to be short with it um the scene in which all characters sit in a circle on the floor in the library and tell stories about why they were in detention was not scripted writer and director john hughes told them all to ad lib so i'm I'm thinking he probably had like uh, an outline of like you were here for this this and this and and let you let them actually have like um like some organic dialogue, like what they would really feel, you know? Yeah. Uh, That's cool though. That I, I guess I wouldn't have thought, especially for a teen movie and how well I perceive this movie to be written, that there would be so much ad lib in it. That's cool. 
well, maybe that's why it feels so real and natural, especially that that's scene true. where they're spilling their guts because it's like it's actually coming. And and of course, then again, it's like these the only one that's actually a teenager is Molly Ringwald. So um, credit to them for, you know, making it feel so real, um, considering yeah. they were a little bit older than that. But uh, another interesting fact, the film was shot in sequence, which is very rare for movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense for this because it, like we talked about earlier, it's like a play. So I imagine they sort of just did did it like set it up like a play i mean the camera barely there's not even really any moving shots in this it's basically um people in frame and it's it's this is uh hugh's second movie he directed like his fifth or sixth or seventh something that he wrote but the only the second movie he actually directed and um it's very very simple like we talked about one room thing but it's it you know that's it sort of like makes me think of modern day Kevin Smith, like with clerks and stuff. It was more or, mm. you know, like dialogue driven. So uh, it makes sense that they shot it in sequence, especially something like this, because you don't really need to. Uh, it's not like you. Oh, we have the pool scene on Tuesday because we have use of the pool or something. It's like okay. when you're in one room, you might as well just shoot it. It's easier for everybody. But um, that's true. Judd Nelson stayed in character off camera, even bullying Molly Ringwald. Um, John hears John Hughes nearly fired him over this, but Paul Gleason, who played the uh, principal or not the principal, I think he was the uh, yeah, was the vice principal. Yeah. He, he defended him, saying that he was a good actor and he was trying to get into character. So I mentioned a little bit about that, but he even bullied the other uh, actors off off camera. Yeah, <laughs> not surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John Hughes wrote the entire screenplay to this movie in just two days, July 4th and 5th, 1982. Wow. Pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. Um, It was originally suggested there would be several sequels to this movie occurring every 10 years in which The Breakfast Club would get back together. Uh, This had not come to pass due to the volatile relationship between John Hughes and Judd Nelson. Uh, Hughes Mm -hmm. stated that he would never work with Nelson again. Also, it was unclear whether or not Hughes still held ill will against his off-cast starlet, Molly Ringwald. Um, They Mm -hmm. had a falling out in the late 80s after Ringwald decided to move on from the teen film genre to pursue more adult roles. Um, And I also read, and I don't know if I have this later in my notes, but I'd heard this too on another podcast, very sort of weird, that um, Molly Ringwald and... uh, uh, now nah, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Michael Anthony Hall actually dated, um, like they met each other and, and dated on this move during this movie. And, uh, John Hughes sort of felt like took it personal. I'm like, John Hughes is an adult and she was 16. Like, why did he take this? Yeah. It's sort of, he, I know he sort of used her as a muse, but it's like really sort of weird how his relationship with her seems like the way, the more I read into it. So I don't want to indicate anything, but, uh, it's just sort of like, <laughs> yeah and i've and i've of course I've, I've heard that he was very um immature hughes was for his age which would mm. make sense because he's he's very good at writing teenage characters so maybe he just you know sort of immature in his relationships and his professional relationships too thanks judd nelson went undercover at a local high school outside chicago near where the film was shooting and convinced the teenagers that he was a legitimate student which is straight up weird this is like uh what was that uh jump street 22 jump street. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah after buying beer for them with his fake id which was a real id um nelson told them to drop him off at the hotel where the actors were staying years later looking back nelson said they would ask me why i was staying at a hotel and i told them my dad was in jail 
I guess I have a lot of questions about that. I'm wondering, like, did they actually buy it or did they just, you know, oh, you're buying us beer? Sure. I'll right. Yeah, probably <laughs> like whatever, dude, just buy us beer. Uh, the dandruff that Allie, uh, Allison shakes onto her pencil drawing for snow was actually achieved by sprinkling Parmesan cheese. Um, obviously i mean if it's clear she doesn't really use it because when they cut back to her that she doesn't have dandruff in her hair but um they uh, for the longest time i guess in the 80s um people the rumor was that she used her real dandruff and it sort of like followed her through her career like uh, this urban legend um but she did however eat the sandwich filled with pixie stick dust and uh apparently at the time she was like a very clean eating vegan and it like really like messed with her body uh, eating that much sugar that quick. Huh. Um, John Hughes said that before filming began, the cast rehearsed the entire movie a few times as if it were a play, which makes sense. After the film became a hit, Hughes was asked to write the script as a play. So high schoolers could perform it. Ah, I could see that. Yeah. That'd be sort of cool. I've, I've never seen like a high school production of it, but it would be really a, a cool thing uh, especially now with everything sort of old becoming new again. Right. Yeah. I'm surprised that they haven't done a, haven't done the Netflix series. Exactly. And eventually this will probably get remade. I mean, everything is, and he's, he's passed. So I'm sure his, uh, estate is always looking for more money. So I did, um, I did see a, I don't know if you've ever watched the show, uh, sex education on Netflix, but they have an episode that is clearly now that I've seen it is clearly a homage to, Breakfast Club, where like many of the characters are given the detention and they have a, a task to see how they're all having common. And and now that I've seen this, like I can see how it is very directly influenced by. Yeah, like almost an homage. Oh yeah, definitely. But I'm sure there. I mean, I'm sure it's been influenced. I mean, his work in general has influenced teen comedies and uh, dramas. Right. Yeah. You'll probably catch more references now when you watch stuff like, oh, that's from Breakfast Club or they ripped, yeah. they ripped that off Breakfast Club or whatever. Right. Uh, the theme song, Don't You Forget About Me, was written for the film by Keith Forsey. It was number one hit for Simple Minds um, and Billy Idol and Brian Ferry turned down offers to record it first. Um, the song was also turned down by Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, who suggested they offer to the band fronted by her husband at the time, Simple Minds. Uh, I don't think I have this in my notes, uh, but I also read that they sort of um, just did it as a favor because they're running out of options for bands like they kept. They, I mean, it got turned down by like four different artists and eventually Simple Minds did it as sort of like a fine. We'll do it um, and sort of had like a crappy attitude about it. And then it turned out to be their their career defining hit. And, you know, it's been it's probably made them rich for the rest of their lives. Yeah. I could totally hear like Billy Idol or uh, the Pretenders, Chrissy Hind. I could totally hear their voices for that song. Yeah. And I guess in 2001, Billy Idol did end up recording it as a bonus track for his greatest Mm -hmm. hits album. So uh, I don't think I've heard it, but yeah, I definitely could could tell like uh, they're looking for that style. But I I think, (laughs) you know, it's like one of those happy accidents. I think um, Simple Minds was ended up being the band for it and. I'll always associate that that song with this movie. Yeah. Well, and I think when you're when you have this kind of movie that ends up being a classic, like 
like I said, I think if it had been a Billy Idol, like, you know, they came with baggage of their own celebrity at the time, so to have more of an unknown, maybe not unknown, but... Uh, lesser. lesser known, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, your your comment earlier about the, the library scene where they're dancing and not having, like, a number one hit, it's, it's sort of cool because it's like, you know, if this movie didn't do well, um, those songs would have just been put into obscurity, especially this one, but it's like because of the popularity of the movie, the movie actually made the songs popular, you know, and instead of the other way around. So it, it is, it's, it's cool how it works when it, and it works that way with actors too. Like when you cast an unknown actor and a movie becomes big, like this made a lot of people's careers, you know? So in um, casting trivia, this is, I found a lot of this pretty interesting. Um, John Cusack auditioned several times for John Bender, even traveling between Chicago and LA before being cast. However, John Hughes went in a different direction and dropped Cusack in favor of Judd Nelson, which was heavily influenced by the casting director. Uh, hmm. Can you imagine Cusack? I could, I can picture him being like a smart Alec asshole. I could, yeah, I can get the smart Alec asshole, but I can't really get bad boy from I Cusack. Th- I think, I think they did, you know, they did cast him, but I think, um, I read too, or, or was, uh, I, I'm, I mean, I've listened to so many podcasts and read so much. I, I had heard that, uh, somewhere that, you know, they just thought he was, unbe- he wasn't believable as like intimidating. Like he could be, a, yeah. he could be a smart Alec, but not, um, like scary to the other guys. Right. Right. Uh, uh, Emilio Estevez actually was originally going to play Bender. However, John Hughes could not find someone to play Andrew. So Estevez agreed to play the wrestler, mm. which I don't, I- I don't know about that one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think Judd Nelson was much better fit, but I don't know. I guess I could have, I could see it. Well, um, Emilio, I think about like he was in Repo Man and a couple other things, and he he never he wasn't really like the pretty boy um, before mm. that, and so I guess you know you give him a little bit longer hair, uh, and he was he's had the stature like he's big guy, so I could see him, you know, he, he could play yeah. it. In a leather jacket or a Mighty Ducks jacket. <laughs> there you go. Totally, totally <laughs> uh, Nicholas Cage was originally considered for the role of John Bender, but the production could not afford his salary at the time. Wow. Jim Carrey also auditioned for the role of John Bender, which not a good fit. No. Um, <laughs> Rick Moranis was originally cast as a janitor. He grew a thick beard and decided to play the character with a Russian accent. Uh, John Hughes planned to let Moranis reinterpret the character, but producer Ted Tannen so um, opposed his comical creative liberties that he had Rick replaced with John Kapalos. So I think that was probably a good move. I think so too. I think, you know, kind of a straight laced right. uh, reason level headed that we were talking about. I think it was better fit for that. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and and more janitor casting. Bill Murray and John Candy were both considered for Carl, which I I love John Candy and his uh, work with uh, Hughes. But uh, Candy went yeah. on to work with Hughes in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck, and Home Alone. So he did end up doing some movies with him. But um, I I also think he's a little too comical for this. Like I think the casting was right on. Yeah, I I could see Bill Murray doing it. You know, and his his brand of comedy is not too brought a balance to it but i like how, i like how it ended up yeah jody foster was considered to play claire and brooke shields was considered to play allison at some point weird on both accounts yeah uh, <laughs> and robin wright was auditioned for the role of claire but was not considered I, that i can see i mean princess 
bride. Yeah, almost too pretty. <laughs> right, right, right. That's what I liked about Molly Ringwald. Like, um, like, especially at the, in the eighties, like it was all about uh, blondes, and so they cast like a redhead, and it was like you know believable. Like she felt like out of everybody, she felt like the most high schooler, but probably because she was the only one that was that age. Um, Laura Dern tried out for both female parts in a breakfast club and was rejected. Uh, later after this, she referred to John Hughes movies as that teenage junk. Um, of course, then she went on to, uh, get lead roles in David Lynch's blue velvet and Chopra's smooth talk. So she ended up doing more of, uh, like serious roles, but it seemed like she had a little bit of a chip on her shoulder and threw some shade after she didn't get either role. But I love Laura Dern. Um, yeah, I don't know if she would have been a good fit, but uh, maybe as as Allie, but not so much as Claire. Yeah, I don't know any of her work from that time period, so I can only think like more recent work that she's done. So I can't really picture it, but I can see like you know having your heart set on a role and then not getting it, but then ending up in a different genre and being able to look back on that. Like, well, you rejected me, but look at me now. Um, I could see that, especially as a, as a young actor, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, here's actually something I talked about earlier, but I do have it. The ages of everyone in the principal cast at the time of fielding. Um, Judd Nelson was 25. Molly Ringwald was 16 and she turned 17 only three days after the film was released. Uh, Amelia was 23 and uh anthony michael hall was 16 and ali sheedy was 23 so every it was like you're either 16 or in your mid-20s like they're like 10 years apart yeah that is that is strange i guess those but those two do seem the youngest of yeah yes for sure and it's and it makes sense because that later they ended up dating because i was a little worried um i I was like how old was michael he doesn't he definitely looks 16 but it's good it's comforting to know he was 16 so yes uh, um, Ali Sheedy had first auditioned for the part of Samantha Baker in 16 Candles, which went to Molly Ringwald. When Sheedy auditioned, she had two black eyes from a set building accident. The black <laughs> eyes gave her a dark gothic image, which stayed with John Hughes when it was time to cast a part of Allison for Breakfast Club. He remembered her and he called her. Ah, well, so, happy, happy accident. accident. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Allison uh, does not speak until 25 minutes into the movie, uttering a mocking ha in response to Claire, who ironically orders her to shut up. So she says one word 25 minutes in, and they turn around and tell her, shut up. Mm. <laughs> I threw this one in because uh, I thought you would find this interesting as an Illinoisan. Is that how you, an Illinois resident? I think that's correct. I don't. I haven't used it um, often, but yeah, I think Illinoisan is probably the correct term. As most people know, Shermer, Illinois, is a fictitious suburb of Chicago in several John Hughes films, such as this film, as well as Weird Science, Ferris Bueller, Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink, and National Lampoon's uh, Vacation. But the zip code that Brian states in the opening of the film, 60062, is to an actual town. It belongs to Northbrook, Illinois, a town about 30 miles North of Chicago, Northbrook was originally incorporated in Shermanville, uh, and one of the main roads to the town is still named Shermer Road. Uh, John Hughes graduated from Glenbrook Glenbrook High School and based his movies on the school and students. The Breakfast Club was the nickname for Saturday detentions. Uh, so very, uh, yeah. So a little history on um, the. I always thought it was cool that his stuff was based around Chicago because. Uh, we actually watched this and Ferris Bueller on a art club trip to Chicago. 
Nice. And uh, I was like, that was my first trip to Chicago. I didn't really travel growing up. And so when we had high school, it was like art. It was like a cheap way to get to go places. And uh, we watched on the bus and I was just like, oh, it's really cool. Like, especially in Ferris Bueller, they're go- they're driving through the city. And then I'm on this bus and I'm like, we're going down the street from Ferris Bueller. Um, that would be cool. Yeah, that'd be a cool experience for sure. I know people who have like visited some of the like landmarks from some of these movies right i've always i think uh, i always wanted to see the home alone house because that's a famous one and then a lot of people go to um cameron's garage where he like puts his dad's car out of the back of the garage oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah uh john hughes wanted the detention area to take place in a library but the school's library is too small so they built the library set in the school's gym um Molly Ringwald was has declared in interviews, when you grow up, your heart dies, said by Allison Reynolds in this movie is her favorite line. So we have that in common. Nice. Uh, John Hughes said that getting the film greenlit by Universal wasn't easy because the executives complained there were no bare breasts, no party scene, no guys drinking beer or other things they thought a teenage picture needed at the time. Wow. And originally, I don't think I have this in my notes, but there was a character that was like a... Um, I think a gym teacher or something and she's a female and there's a scene where um, the, the boys sneak off and they spy on her in a locker room and she's like naked or something and the girl mm. the, the girl actresses were like this is completely gratuitous and unneeded um, let's not have this and they basically said we're not filming this movie if you keep this scene in and I think oh, they made God. the right call because it would have been pretty stupid yeah it would have been up there with like Portuguese and some of those stupid ones so yeah uh, Stanley Kubrick, of all people, watched The Breakfast Club four times and was so impressed by Michael Michael Anthony Hall's Anthony Michael Hall's performance um, that he tried to cast him in Full Metal Jacket, but he was uh, not able to do it. So that would have been pretty interesting. Yeah, that that was in '87. So only two years later, he would have been 18. That's that's pretty wild. It is wild. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off were both inducted into the National Registry for being cult- culturally significant. Um, Ferris Bueller in 2014, Breakfast Club in 2016. Those were the only two John, Fumes, John Hughes films that accomplished this. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. I think that's a good, well, well-deserved, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, film critic Gene Siskel called this a teenaged who's afraid of Virginia Woolf so yeah a classic play yep uh i have a few more here before uh we wrap up but there's just so much interesting stuff on this one uh john hughes originally wanted the breakfast club to be a two and a half hour movie however many of the scenes were cut out and the negatives destroyed john hughes said (laughs) in premiere that he had only one complete copy of the breakfast club on film among the cut scenes from the movie are and uh there's there's a million if you want to actually read through these um i suggest you go on imdb because they cut a lot of stuff i'm not going to read through all of these because like i said there's um I'll, I'll just pick a few that are interesting um john bender was not going to walk to school in the original script he was going to be driven by his dad in a rusty tow truck and have a brief fight with him before he drives off uh, bender was also tossed a bagged lunch with his father saying you are a waste of lunch meat. Uh, just some a little more character development. Um, after getting the sodas, Bender shakes his can violently and places it among the five to see who gets the rigged one. 
Allison mm-hmm. ends up getting it, and when she opens the can, all the soda squirts directly into her mouth, which we sort of see later when she opens her Coke. Uh, it, it sprays onto the table, and she's, like, licking off the table, and everyone's staring at her. <laughs> so uh, I wonder if they probably, you know, just cut out the part where he shakes it and just kept that scene. Yeah, and you said that um, Hughes had had a film, like, a copy of it, or...? Yeah, he had the only, like, original cut of it, and um, he says... After, after he like burned all the original negatives so he edited together this super long cut and it's never been seen and it's not available anywhere and he's he's mm-hmm. passed now so um i imagine if if it's still uh let's see actually it says during a cast reunion in honor of the film's 25th anniversary ali sheedy revealed that a director's cut existed but hughes widow did not disclose any details concerning its whereabouts so mm-hmm. it might you would think though is his estate would probably jump on that if they had it but um maybe it was like his his wish to not release it or something you know yeah maybe the widow is honoring that and then at some point later on like one of the shithead kids or something (laughs) right yeah we'll get the the, what is it the snyder cut that's coming out (laughs) yeah like a five hour yeah superhero movie we don't need at all exactly (laughs) But yeah, that's all the exhaustive trivia. Like I like I said, I've never seen a movie with uh, more trivia than this one. Uh, but I, I love it. I actually, it's been oh six, five, six years ago. I actually got to talk with Molly Ringwald for a while, and uh, she does music, or she did music about five or six years ago. She had sort of turned into a jazz artist, surprisingly. Mm. Um, very good singer, and we have. In Burlington, Iowa, we have this really nice musical um, music program. I don't know what else you'd call it. A uh, series every year. It's called Civic Music, and they present like six or seven concerts. Usually it's uh, like, uh, you know, a jazz singer, a um, brass band, a whatever they like uh, an orchestra. They they try to bring in a variety of stuff in one year. They brought in um, Molly Ringwald and... I work at a print shop and I do all their programs every year and I work directly with them. And, um, they're pretty nice about like, if you ever want to come to one of our shows, just let us know and we'll get you some tickets. So, um, I had never taken them up on it cause mostly it's like the, the crowd's like 80 year olds and above. Uh, <laughs> and then Molly Ringwald came and I was like, I will be willing to sit through like an hour and a half of her music if I get to meet her afterwards. So it was actually a pretty good show. Um, nice. She she's really good singer and it was like not your like dude with a stand up bass in a dark smoky room jazz but it was uh, okay. yeah it was like her or she had like a pian- a guy on a piano and her singing like classic uh you know renditions like more like singer songwriter type thing but okay okay um it was really good and then afterwards um we took our time and went downstairs and she was signing like CDs and stuff and so what I did was I went out to my car and I actually had uh, Jay Ryan's uh, Breakfast Club print. Oh, cool. And so I wait. I sort of went and took my time because I knew there was a long line and I hung out and I waited till I was the last person in line because I knew that would be the best way to get some time with her. And, uh, you know, everybody had gone through and I was like, you know, do you mind some signing? I asked her first, do you mind signing a Breakfast Club thing? And she was like, no, no, not at all. And I, I was respectful and bought an actual CD for her to sign to because I don't want to nice. just be like freeloading off of her. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure she's met so many weird guys like me just like I, I love breakfast club can you sign my poster uh actually right right in front of us this i felt so bad i probably shouldn't tell the story but this kid 
brought up he was uh he he was sort of like a male alley uh in this <laughs> he walked up and he had a copy of breakfast club in really bad condition on vhs and mm-hmm. he was not at the concert he just found out she was there and had gotten into the venue somehow um uh, and and asked her to sign it and she was so super sweet mm-hmm. and was like you know who should i sign it to and he's like it's for my mom she's a big fan um okay. so i i was like oh that's really sweet and she took her time and you know what's your mom's name how do you spell it and wrote it out and said thanks for coming and stuff and then i uh stepped up and i unrolled i was like do you mind signing a poster and she's of course she's like no you know let me see it and i rolled it out and she's like oh my gosh what is this and i'm like it's a screen print from a chicago artist named jay ryan and she's yeah. like this is beautiful can you give me his information so i was like yeah his I gave her a website and i was like <laughs> you know i was like this was like a few years after uh I th- you you went on that trip with us right to his studio no i didn't, I didn't. Oh. but uh i was like you know i can at that point i was like you know i could probably put you i can susan knows him i can like you know kevin bacon it in six degrees and get you uh, yeah, right. <laughs> i mean she's she's molly ringwald like he, you know he's gonna she, she probably has a way to get a hold of jay ryan but um i would think so yeah she was very like you know this is really cool i've never seen it and asked about you know the process i was like oh it's you know screen printed with you know seven like several layers of inks and stuff and um we, we just sort of talked about the movie and the concert and you know the film festival and a little bit of everything and then uh she signed it you know uh princess and then put her name at, like right by her head and she's like you know maybe someday you know you'll meet the other cast and you can have them sign it by their heads and uh, that never happened but it would have been really you know th- i'm not dead yet so there's always hope but uh, yeah, yeah they're still they're still kicking but i mean out of everybody it's pretty cool to to meet molly ringwall because she was you know sort of at the time the the biggest of the brat pack and uh yeah, yeah that was my my little run-in with uh her and with breakfast club and um yeah that's that's that just, awesome yeah and i i have that frame now and you know matted and it looks really cool and um just lucky to have be at the right place at the right time which seems to happen to me quite a bit but um let's remind people jordan where uh they can find you if you want to put out your socials on there if uh our listeners want to uh check out what you're doing what you're up to Sure. Yeah. Um, all my socials. So I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, Twitter. Uh, the same handle. So it's Mr. DeWild Art. Um, I post a lot of what my kids are doing in the art classroom. Um, also, just like art education related things. Um, I used to write articles for uh, Art Education University. And so I write a lot about art and social justice or art and diversity or, or just art ideas. Um, so I do a lot with that and then, you know, the drawing book and, and things like that. Anything that I'm getting up to, I, I put on my socials. So Mr. DeWildArt, MrDeWildArt.com, they can check it out. That's awesome. Like I said, it's just been so cool. Every time you have a new project coming up, I get excited uh, to see what you're doing because everything you've done is fantastic. Did you have any final thoughts on The Breakfast Club? Um, I mean, I think we covered a lot tonight and again, I, you know, I just had the, had the joy of watching it from a teacher's perspective. I kind of wish I had seen it prior. So I reflected on it more from, you know, nostalgia, I guess, as a high school student or just, you know, the, the universal themes of it all. But, um, like I said earlier, I do think a lot of the, the topics still resonate with kids today, but I also think 
you know, there's been progress made in making sure, you know, kids feel seen, whether it be in the media or in, in the classroom and in schools. I think there's a lot more caring adults, less, uh, less guys like, uh, the vice principal in this, in this film. I think there are more people in education now that truly want to be there to, to help students. So, um, I do have some, you know, hopeful thoughts for the future and uh but this movie was really really cool to to look at um through that lens i'm glad that i uh one for one got you to finally open that dvd and watch it uh yes and get you on here to talk about it because it's it's not every day i find someone our age that hasn't seen this um love it or hate it and that's sort of what we celebrate on here is, you know, I, I don't, I'm sure every time you, you mentioned it, every time you told someone you hadn't seen it, they're like, what have you not seen it? Oh my gosh. And on this show, I try to celebrate that. I'm like, yes, I'm so glad you haven't seen it because I'm the one that gets to talk to you about it after your first time. Uh, is there any other movies that you want to, or, or shows or anything you want to get off your chest that you haven't experienced? Like you want to let the world know, <laughs> like get that uh, off your shoulders and, and just sort of let it, out there because i've had uh friends on here who are like you know i've never seen like and i i haven't either like lord of the rings and it feels so good to finally say it out loud because uh <laughs> i'm sick of you know hiding that inside myself but are there any like big ones that you haven't seen that you feel like you you probably should yeah the uh the, the matrix trilogy i haven't seen at all so that's one that's that's on my list it's been on my list for a while it was just one of those ones that by the time i was kind of around getting around to watching it like everyone I knew had seen it and I just was kind of like well I don't know and it's not one that I'm ever like oh I'm in the mood for for this right so yeah I need to jump into that especially since they're they're revamping it uh with the, the next installment so yeah it's actually like once again celebrate it because you get to experience it if you want to um see all three right before the fourth and not many yeah. people are going to be able to say they get to do that you know that's true. That's true. So I'll, I'll hold off even more. I'll procrastinate longer and then see it right before it fourth comes out. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, that was one of those cultural things too. A, a big, uh, a big product of its time. I'm curious to see how a new movie does in this, uh, time period, yeah. but, uh, looking back at them, they're, they're pretty, pretty corny at times, but they did change filmmaking. But, uh, I celebrate that you haven't seen them. Um, and like I said, I, I tell people every time on here, I've never seen a single Bond film. I've never seen Lord of the Rings movie. I'm waiting for some like huge Lord of the Rings nerd to finally convince me that um, to convince me to stay awake through the first one, because I've tried watching the first Lord of the Rings about five times. I've fallen asleep every time. It's it's not that I am against these films. I just am physically unable to stay awake. And to me, that says something about them. But yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, I can't. I can't make that argument. I, I actually I only went to see the second one in theaters, and I was just astounded how long it was. And if I wasn't with people in person, I would have definitely fallen asleep. So I'm not going to argue with you on that one. Well, I think it's also the same thing you said about the Matrix. By the time um, I sort of caught wind of them from my friends, they had already all seen them, and like that wave was gone. I mean, that's the same thing with like the Mandalorian and Game of Thrones. If yeah, you, especially yeah. now in this culture where um, we just digest stuff 
and watch it and, and binge everything as quick as possible. And if you haven't seen it by the you know first day it's out, then you're going to get it spoiled and then you just sort of don't want to see it. But it doesn't matter because there's another thing coming out the next day. There's just so sure. much content. It's wild, man. Right. Yeah, definitely. And we could talk the same with music. You know, albums are not the thing anymore. And... Right. Yeah, and we, we had talked about doing music, and it definitely have to have you back on to, to do something that either I haven't seen or listened to. Like, we talked about some some TV shows or, or music that I haven't listened to, because um, back in college, we sort of bounced back and forth as far as sharing music with each other a lot. That was sort of one thing that um, we talked about a lot was uh, music, because you're, you're into a lot of the same stuff. I mean, we, we, last time I saw you, we met up at a uh, Jimmy Eat World concert and little did yeah. we know it would be one of the last live shows that we'd see for a long, long time. But no kidding. I, I'm so glad we did that. Not just because I got to ke- keep up or catch up with you just because it's like, we got to enjoy a, a live show and not knowing that this would, that, right. you know, this would be one of the last times. And it's, it's right. just, I'm like, I always tell people, you know, just say yes, just buy the tickets, just go do the thing, especially now. Like, hopefully, hopefully this makes people realize you got to live in the moment and sort of do that, you know? I think so. I think when things start, you know, kind of opening up people, because we've been kind of shut in so long, we'll, we'll go into it, you know, even full force. So I think some, some big things will happen. Um, but that was such a cool show and a cool venue. So I'm glad that, yeah, we did that too. Yeah, I had tickets to see Smashing Pumpkins there in, uh, I don't remember, it was like, I think they pushed it a few different dates, and obviously that they just ended up canceling it, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things, like, I should have seen them before I let this happen, who knows if I'll get a chance now, but uh, I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad that we got to go to a show, and it was a, a sweet venue, a sweet band, uh, and just got to catch up, and and like I said, I'll have to have you back on here and, uh, you know, in, in some other capacity. And, and uh, I'm sure you'll have another project right around the corner that you'll that I'll have to, you know, bring you on and for you to plug and, and let people know about because I love your book. And uh, I just know so many people who struggle with um, art and drawing and stuff. And I'm telling you guys, like, if you pick up this book, it's affordable. It's really simple to follow. And it will actually boost your confidence into even if you're like a person who says, I can't draw stick figures. That's something that always people always say, uh, mm-hmm. this will get you drawing. It's, it's really, really simple to follow. And, uh, like, like he said, you can buy it on Amazon, check out, uh, his, his website, all the socials. It's, you know, like he said, if you, uh, just Google Jordan DeWile, it'll probably be the first, one of the first things that pops <laughs> up. Uh, not, not many other, uh, Jordan DeWiles out there. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show, Jordan. It's so g- great to catch up and, and talk about this uh, great movie, and I'm so glad you liked it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is such a cool concept. I, I can't wait to to listen to more episodes and, and see what you're doing next. So I really appreciate it, and I would love to be back and talk with you again. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A special thank you goes out to my friend Scott Schreiner for our intro and outro music. We'll see you next week on First Time Podcast. You're a neo-maxi-zoomed dweeby.